The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and now you can enjoy all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts on the Electric Now channel. Download Zumo, Distro TV, Stir, and the Electric Now app, where you can enjoy great television and movies from Electric Entertainment, as well as all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts like The 430 Movie, Inglorious Trexperts, the best movies never made, The Rebel and the Rogue, a Star Wars podcast, and coming soon, Two on Who, a Doctor Who podcast. You must learn to listen to The Rebel and the Rogue, or you will not be allowed to come with me to Alderaan. If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And <laughs> Trexperts. Tonight well, on the Trexperts. Tonight on the Sunday Night Movie. It's the one that started it all. Star Trek. <laughs> Not exactly, but uh, what a great what a great show we have for you. We're, we're going to have uh, Eric Gendrinson, the uh, brilliant uh, screenwriter of uh, Band of Brothers, joining us. And you may say, Band of Brothers, that doesn't sound very Star Trekian. Well, just wait. The, just to wait, yeah. But Eric wrote a really terrific uh, script for Paramount uh, in the wake of the Nemesis disaster um, and the cancellation of Enterprise called um, Jordan Kerner was sort of tasked with um, – continuing the Star Trek movie franchise. He was the executive over at uh, Paramount, who I think had a development deal there. And uh, along with Rick Berman, um, the commissioned a script called Star Trek, the beginning. Um, and it's a, a wonderful, interesting footnote in Star Trek history that you may not be aware of. And uh, we get to really do a deep uh, dive. And to do that, we have some expert Trexperts with us joining us again. Uh, once again, uh, screenwriter of Thor and X-Men First Class, Ashley Edward Miller. Welcome back, Ashley. Thank you for having me. And we Always have the writer, provocateur, um, live for the Network from his secret uh, secret uh, base uh, somewhere in Pasadena. It's uh, Robert Meyer Burnett. Welcome back, Rob. Mark, it's uh, great to be here. I, I'm, I'm really happy to be able to finally talk about this script because it's a very interesting part of Star Trek history. And, you know, this script was actually dated August of 2005, which was quite uh, close to when Enterprise ended its run. Mm -hmm. 
Right, right. Uh, I mean, it, it was interesting because they knew Enterprise was going off the air. The The feature film series was just, was over after Nemesis. Um, and understandably so. I mean, uh, this is a movie that not only, uh, you know, it, it costs more than any Star Trek movie ever cost, but it also, um, you know, it underperformed in a big way. It's, it's the least profitable Star Trek um, movie of any of the films. And it's, it's really a train wreck. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Nemesis is, is, is a train wreck. Um, it's awful on every level. Uh, it really is. Why is that? I mean, I, I look, is there anybody here who's a fan of that movie? I, I mean, I just... I, no fans, but I mean, like, where do we start? I mean, number one, there is the the um, the Technobabble is completely unhinged. It is off the chain. The Theralon radiation, whatever the hell that is. Like, all of the, uh, the plot conveniences that come from needing to tech the, the tech. Um, so many ideas that were just kind of tossed together. Um, the uh, the the B4 Android and data, that story was just kind of mashed into the story with Picard and Shinzon. I mean, all of those, it felt like a, like a bad episode of the next generation when you had an A story with a B story that was sort of thematically related, but really kind of sucked about 80% more. You know what I mean? It's that to me, like, sank it more than anything else because nothing could get momentum at all. It's hung on an absolutely ludicrous premise that they mm-hmm. would clone a nobody from Starfleet in hopes that one day he'll be powerful. That's yeah. ludicrous. I, I, I think of an episode of Next Generation, which had just, in the seventh season, where the Ferengi cloned Picard. Yeah. Like, it had been done before. And they're doing it again, and it's exactly what you said. Why in the world? It's not like you're cloning the Federation president. No. You're some guy who is a nobody, because and, and then you're putting him in charge of this people we've never even heard about, the Remans, who are like the miners. It's like Jeff Corey, you know, Zenite Gas, or I don't know what's going on there. And 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 it's just like I think for people who like like that movie, it's literally because the digital domain effects don't suck. You know, it's like people say it's better than Star Trek Five. No, it's not. It's not. It has some good visual effects, um, but story wise, it's 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 a awful and and i don't know what ron perlman was doing as the as the viceroy and 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 then there's this weird stuff with the mind rape of troy and uh, i don't remember it i haven't watched it in so long well, all over the place also you had a director in Stuart baird who was you know one of the great film editors of the modern age of hollywood truly a terrific film editor he's worked on bond films he's worked on just about every big franchise property apparently he was owed a favor by Paramount for coming in and saving, I think, the second Tomb Raider. So they had to give him up. And this was like the thing that was the least problematic. They figured, well, it's got a built-in audience. How bad can it be? And Stuart Baird was a director who gave no one really particularly enjoyed the experience. And Stuart Baird wasn't a Star Trek fan. So he didn't bring any enthusiasm to the franchise with him, which I think is evident throughout the entire film. He antagonized the entire cast because he made no secret of the fact that he hated Star Trek and felt he was above it. And uh, so you go into this movie, uh, you know, after Frakes had directed the last two who love Star Trek and who love the cast. And and then all of a sudden, oh, we're going to make it. And, and look, this movie is so misguided in every way. Um, you, you basically, the reason it got made was because John Logan, who at the time, you know, was a very prestigious screenwriter and playwright, 
was a Star Trek fan and wanted to do Star Trek. So sort of Patrick and Brent got the studio and Rick excited about, oh, John Logan. Because everybody always wants to make Star Trek and say, this is going to be prestigious. This isn't for Starfucker Trek. So this is going to be something that broadens the, the, the appeal. It's, it's going to be classy and, uh, you know, classy. And, um, and, 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 and Logan, who you would think would understand what makes Star Trek works, does virtually makes every rookie mistake possible. And it just, it, it, there's not good dialogue. I mean, and they spend a month, it still looks cheap. And, and that scene where they chase the, the spaceship chase through the corridors of, of the Romulan ship, at, the, the supersized corridors just to allow for this chase. I mean, it, oh, don't well, even. put aside the Star Trek for a second. That, that, that story, that script, doesn't even work as a story and a script that on is the not most fundamental level. Yeah. And, and how does that happen? A complete right. misunderstanding of what cloning is. Right. So often somebody seems to think you clone somebody. That the, end is. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, why does, why does, why does science fiction writers or people that don't know science fiction think that if somebody's cloned, that they're going to have the same traits or the same mental faculties right. as the original. It doesn't work that way, and it drives me crazy. Although Tom Hardy is really good. We, we can't hear you, Mark. T- try it, again. It did have off-road racing, which is very important in a Star Trek movie. Right. Because when you can have Picard racing in the desert in a, in a monster truck, that's entertainment. Well, we've, we've all read this, uh, the Star Trek The Beginning uh, script recently. Yeah. And uh, I think... It's really ironic that this script would have uh, made the fan base bigger. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And because it's it's a it's a real story. It's a real movie. So it's just it's just uh, ironically hilarious. The uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, I think that the beginning is a really great script as a script. I think it's even a great Star Trek story. I'm not 100% convinced that it's a movie. Um, I think that it's a TV show. I think it's a very long pilot. Hmm. Um, and I think as a film, if, if it could somehow in some way have been adapted with, um, with familiar characters, probably not the Enterprise crew, because that's like, you know, putting vanilla on vanilla. But, um, you know, if, if there was some way to take that storytelling sensibility and, and hook it into... Um, the the characters and the ship that we love, then yes, movie. But um, the script, I think, kind of it it's great, but it cheats at the end in the way that like a great episode of streaming television cheats at the end. Right. Right. It's like it doesn't quite resolve, which which can be okay, um, but it can also be, I think, very frustrating. Um, and I think it would have been a major risk for Paramount. I don't know, even if Don DeLine had survived. Five. I don't know that that script would have gone into production as is without some fairly significant. I mean, I can almost hear the development notes in the back of my head, and I'm not saying they would have been a good idea. Why don't we? Why that, don't we find, bad. Why don't we find out what actually happened and uh, bring Eric Genderson in? Great. Okay, and now uh, we're, we're going to join. Uh, have Eric Genderson, the screenwriter of Star Trek: The Beginning, join us for a conversation about Star Trek: The Beginning. So. Eric, come on down. Come in. So, Eric, uh, let's go back to the beginning. No pun intended. Uh, uh, you, um, 
I, I, this is such an interesting part of Star Trek lore, Star Trek history, because of course it was such an ambitious undertaking that unfortunately never saw the light of a projector bulb. Tell us what the origin of Star Trek The Beginning was for you, how you got involved and what the genesis of the project was. Right. Well, I, <clears throat> it was shortly after Band of Brothers that I received this call from my agent. Uh, I was at CAA at the time asking me if I had any interest in, in, uh, in Star Trek. And I said, no, I, that I, I really didn't. And, um, he said, okay, about a week later, <laughs> he said, well, would you get on the phone with these guys? I said, what, what, wait a minute, what part don't you understand? He said, no, no, they, they just like to talk to you. I think it was Jordan Kerner and Carrie McCluggage. And I think it was just the two of them at the time. I said, oh, okay. And we got on the phone and started talking, and, and they said, well, how do you feel about Star Trek? And I said, well, to be perfectly honest with you, I, I'm i not a, a, a guidable Star Trek fan. I said, um, there's one, there are two things about the series that I think are remarkable as a, as a storyteller I, and that really appeal to me. One is the character of James T. Kirk, this sort of Horatio Hornblower-esque captain that I just love. And secondly, I think the fact that it was always at least the original series was always socially relevant um i mean almost back then when it was originally broadcast almost torn from the headlines i mean really a remarkable feat and there was something about the whole mission of it as a, as a, to tell these stories and, and contextualize them in a way that was popular for people to make them really think and i said i think that was extraordinary but other than that i'm really i'm not really a science fiction kind of guy and they said, well, we'd be really interested in talking to you about, you know, developing. We want to go back to the beginning and the origins and sort of a, a prequel. I said, well, that, that's, that's certainly interesting, interesting, but I don't think I'm your guy. Uh, about a month later, they got in contact with me again. And they said, would you... Take no for an answer. Would not take no for an answer. And I still to this day don't know why. And <laughs> uh, maybe it was because, the, you know, the one thing you'd never do in Hollywood is say no. That makes right. everybody sit up and take notice. <laughs> what do you mean no so uh we got on the phone again and i said guys i they said look if just imagine that you had completely free reign you could do whatever the hell you wanted to do what what would it be i said okay let me think about it. i'll get back to you so i thought about it a little bit and i thought of the notion of if i re i knew enough about the the canon to realize that if, if you consider the canon of star trek as an, an encyclopedia it was missing like the letter g the Earth-Romulan War, ostensibly the inciting incident for the Federation of Planets and for everything that came, right. often referenced, never shown. It was just missing. And I thought, well, that's, now that's interesting. Why not tell the story of the Earth-Romulan War? And then further, I thought, uh, I wanted to create a sort of a progenitor for Kirk. And, and so the, then I started to do a little bit of research. I dipped my toe in and suddenly kind of find myself caught because the notion of doing this earth Romulan war and where it would put everything in the canon and, and how it would all fit started to, some interesting elements started to percolate up for me. And um, I also thought of it initially as a trilogy. So I went, came back to them. I said, imagine a trilogy in which we're dealing with the earth Romulan war and the first uh, um, iteration is, um, the Iliad, second is the Odyssey, and the third I haven't figured out yet. 
And they said, well, let's talk about that. I said, well, you know, maybe. And then they got really serious about it. They said, could you come up with that first movie, The Iliad? And by now I was a little bit hooked. And then the next thing I know, I'm getting boxes and boxes of, of CDs <laughs> of like everything that has ever been broadcast. Or, and uh, it, it kind of caught me up. And I also loved the challenge of trying to tell a story of conflict and war that would lead to the Roddenberry version of, you know, peace. And, and I knew I was breaking with tradition. I was aware of that. But there were two other things. One was that I, I wanted to make it socially relevant. And in looking into the whole notion of the, the fact that there was this colony of Vulcans in Sausalito, California, which is where I happened to live at the time, the small colony of Vulcans and the idea that the Romulans are going through the galaxy, essentially, it's an ethnic cleansing. And at this time, the war in Bosnia was going on. And I thought, my God, this is, this is perfect. I mean, these are the cousins, you know, who are, one is trying to eradicate the other. It's, an, it's a story of ethnic cleansing. And the notion of, of the Romulans coming to Earth and essentially surrounding it and giving Earth an ultimatum to give up their Vulcans and the Earth saying, no, we won't. That was a story I wanted to tell. And then what would happen subsequently and who would be our heroes and how would we get, you know, out of it. And um, so that, that became kind of important to me. So I came up with a story, kind of soup to nuts. And the funniest part of the, the, the whole experience, the strangest part was uh, they brought me down to, to Hollywood and we went to Paramount and it was, it was Rick and Carrie and, Jordan and it was somebody else. I mean, there were way too many producers involved and we were going to go have this meeting with Donald DeLine, who was at the head of Paramount at the time. And they gave me a primer before we went up and they explained to me that Donald's kind of a, you know, reserved guy and he never buys anything in the room. So don't, don't worry about it. I said, I'm really not worried because I still felt like I'm not sure I want to do this. So we went into the room and I remember this, Davenport filled with producers and I'm sitting in this chair and Donald's at his desk. And I started by saying, I, I really don't like science fiction. And I t explained why, what my problems with the, the genre, the, the literary genre were. And I said, all that said, this is what fascinates me about Star Trek, which I've already mentioned. And so this is the story. And I started to tell this thing and I've been in a lot of rooms before. I have never experienced anything like this. I was halfway through and it was as though all of the oxygen had been sucked out of the room. I mean, nothing was, it was the deadest room I've ever seen. And to this day, I looked over at, I think it was Carrie and he was doing the Kennedy just got shot thing for some reason in his sitting there on the couch. I thought, what happened to him? And I suddenly realized this is just, this is over. This, I said, and so I thought to hell with it. And I just went ahead and I told, I got into more detail and I'm making stuff up on the fly and I tell this whole story and I get to the end and then I said, you know, to be continued. Dead silence. And then DeLine says, how long would it take you to write this? And I said, ah, I can have it for you by Tuesday. I said, no, seriously. I said, it, you know, it'll take a eight, 12 weeks. And he stuck his hand out and he said, write it fast. <laughs> that was the end of the meeting. And we all walked out and everybody was looking at me and clapping me on the back saying, my God, this is incredible. You're writing the next Star Trek movie. That's never happened before. Donald's never bought anything in the room. And I'm still thinking to myself, oh, God, I got to actually go home and do this and make this thing work. 
And, um, and so I did. And what I used as my rubric was this. I, I had something that meant as much to me as a, as a boy as Star Trek means to a lot of Trekkies and Trekkers. Was Sherlock Holmes, the, the, the entire canon of Doyle. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized if, if somebody, first of all, I realized there was a benefit to not being a fan of Star Trek in, in writing this, to not being a diehard fan and wanting to pack all kinds of stuff in. I realized that that was probably a benefit as a storyteller. And secondly, I took on the responsibility. I put myself in the other's shoe. It's like if somebody else was going to write a, a missing chapter from Doyle's canon, how would I want them to do it? How responsible would I want them to be? So then I dove in and I went really deep with my research because I wanted to make sure that every I was dotted and every T crossed. I wanted to deliver something that the, the, the fans and the lover of this extraordinary canon would tr- genuinely appreciate and that would uh, do justice to and respect everything that had come before and somehow managed to fit in. So I was trying to carve a perfect jigsaw puzzle piece and it became, the, the more I worked on it, the more important it became to me. Um, you know, so by the time I, I finished the script, I, I, I guess I had turned myself into a, a fan. Um, and then the ultimate irony was that I delivered it on a Tuesday uh, of the week that on the Wednesday of that week, Donald DeLine was fired. So literally the day after I delivered the script. And as most people in Hollywood know, essentially when you have regime change, everything in development gets swept off the desk and into the trash can. So it just sort of immediately died at that point. There had been, uh, there were some preliminary conversations with, with Rick and some of the other producers about, you know, and too late because they knew exactly what I was writing. Did this, would this work uh, by introducing a, a new story into the canon that had no pre-existing characters in it? I mean, I think there's only one, I think, there's an Andorian in the script who is actually, yes, exactly. Um, but would that really work commercially? And what about the war aspect of it and everything? But, you know, I was, I used all of, all of the events of the story that I created and tried to create something really organic and honest to tell us sort of a Pearl Harbor kind of tale. Mm-hmm. And also to be able to address some of the origin stories of like the warp drive and, you know, what was going on in Saturn and little Nell and all of that stuff from, from way deep in the canon. And it was a blast. I, I, I really, I, I enjoy writing. Um, but that's might've been one of the most enjoyable, most fun experiences I've ever had writing a script. I, I have to ask you, I re- reread the script again this morning in preparation for this. First of all, I loved this script. I thought you did a, a terrific job. And I was really struck at just how deep into the canon that you went. I mean, all the way back to TNG's The First Duty with Saturn and bringing back Shran and all the classes of starships that you mentioned from the Andorians to the Vulcans to the Tellarites. I mean, you really went deep, deep, deep into what what happened. And I think the viewers would like to know you also wrote a sequel this was a sequel to the enterprise series i mean this takes place not too long after enterprise is over right i i I thought you did a tremendous job um delineating between the military and starfleet 
which is something that really hasn't been delineated as well as you did in this script. Um, all the different branches of the, of, the, of the service and bringing all that together, opening the script with a literally a, a regatta of hover ships at the at sea was 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 wonderful. And um, while yes, this dealt with war, I thought this was one of the most Star Trekian stories we've certainly received in the last for a long time. And my question to you is: Studios, they don't ever really ever get rid of things things stick around and I, I worked at Warner Brothers 30 years ago and there was properties there were still things that were being developed 20 years after I left that ended up getting made has anyone ever come back to you and said this trilogy is it's very viable and uh, I would think that this is a ready-made already developed script yeah. that you could shoot tomorrow and it would be a wonderful way to revitalize the Star Trek film series and not spend necessarily $200 million. Well, uh, I'm often gratified. Thank you for everything you said. That was uh, awfully nice, kind of you. Uh, it's true. I think that uh, I, it's come up a couple of times. And but as you can imagine, this uh, property at Paramount, you know, is so specific and so huge and there's a lot of politics involved yeah and um it's yeah it's so it's still sitting there now an odd thing did happen i should mention that uh which is a funny little anecdote when jj had finished his film uh i said i got just before it was released i got a letter from the wga and they were notifying me that they were taking action against uh camera paramount and jj's company to not allow the release of the film because i hadn't been in the chain of title of the you know the uh, uh the, the notice of speculative writing credits and i i said what are you guys talking about what are you what are you doing well we're gonna we're gonna hold up the release of them i said wait 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 <laughs> why my story takes place 69 years before kirk is born i mean i Unless there's there are huge elements of the story that JJ the Kurtzman and Orsi used, I mean, I have no, you, you can't do this. I've got nothing to do with that project. And they said, well, but what if? And I said, fine, have Bob call me. And so Bob did call me, and he, I said, I'm sorry about all this. And I said, I just, what, you want to just tell me the story of the movie? <laughs> so he did over the phone. He told me the story. And I said, this that sounds interesting and but it has nothing to do with what i wrote um and so fine so i called the wga and said you gotta just cease and desist um and then subsequently um you know i i don't know i've, I've been i also have been so busy for the last however many 16 years since then um there I, there's always a possibility that it could be it could be resurrected i guess i mean it would I, I don't know what it would really take. I mean, it would take, an, I guess, maybe an aggressive agent or a very curious uh, network executive or somebody who just happened to cross Memory Alpha, which I just discovered today, has all the stuff about the script on it, which is awfully gratifying. Or a studio that has no idea where to turn to next. Yeah, there, there is that. Which, coincidentally... I um, uh, <laughs> I was surprised, though, when reading the script, uh, how faithful it was to the spirit of Star Trek. I mean, there are moments here 
Uh, and I read the script. We were going to do a show with you a while ago, but yeah. this morning, you know, the moment where certain forces show up, you know, to render aid at the last minute, there are, there are amazing moments in this script that really were emotional and exciting. And, and considering what we've been given for the last, you know, decade of Star Trek, I'm very surprised that this script hasn't been readdressed or somebody somebody taking another look at what you're doing because it doesn't interfere with what's being done with Star Trek currently. Right. And it could exist as a trilogy of films, uh, maybe even to be shot concurrently, you know, mm -hmm. which I still don't understand why there's not more of that done. You amortize all those things. And it does deal with a period of time that is irresistible for Star Trek fans. And the fact that it is so relevant today, maybe even more so than ever, uh, that, that somebody doesn't take a harder look at this. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd be all about it. I mean, I, looking back at it, I think that some of the stuff that I really enjoyed most about it was it was, uh, as I said before, really serving the spirit of the story as a storyteller that means not just being respectful of it, but it's being able to come up with moments that are as earned and as genuine as some of the moments in the Star Trek canon have been, like the ones you're referencing. You know, and also the inventiveness... Um, this character, Tiberius Chase, who's really Kirk's great-grandfather, who's the lead of the, of the piece, his inventiveness, especially toward the end, his, his boldness, and this, this notion that he had a problem with, the, with authority and he could never resolve how does one go boldly and follow at the same time. And you know, so that spirit of that Horatio Hornblower kind of spirit that I love so dearly, in the character of James T. Kirk was I wanted to show what, what what's the genesis of that? Why was he named James Tiberius Kirk? You know, what was that history? And I had an awful lot of fun with that and an awful lot of fun with with his relationship with Vulcans and, and sort of exploring that whole thing and the, the whole issue of the logic of what they were doing, um, which was so much fun. It but, totally yeah. reads that way. Um, yeah. And it, it comes through crystal clear. My my fascination with your story of how you how you approached this is that it's quite similar to when we had Nicholas Meyer in to talk about uh, Star Trek II, his approach to it as well. You know the uh, elements of Horatio Hornblower and and sticking to the canon of things like uh, Sherlock Holmes. But also when you were talking, I was realizing that you were approaching it the same way as you would a historical drama. You know, that's it's absolutely a, true. It's yeah. a period piece to a period that just hasn't happened yet. Right. So it's it's fascinating your approach because that's exactly how you should approach it. You should treat it as if it's already happened. Yeah, and I guess I really I didn't do that consciously. I mean, I, didn't, I wouldn't have put it into those words, but that's absolutely true. And the wonderful thing about it to take extrapolate on that is the ability to approach a fictional story as though it were absolute history, but also to have the benefit of everything that came before and everything that came afterwards as well. Exactly. You know, so to try to make sure that all those prompt pieces of that jigsaw puzzle fit with the past and with the future, you know, and, and sort of propel the story forward. Which is what you would do in a historical drama anyway. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I also thought, too, to speak to that, you know, there's been a lot of talk how whether or not modern Star Trek, what they're doing in Discovery, fits over, it fits canonically into the show. And it, 
in my mind, it does not. But your script absolutely did. And I think uh, it, it actually shows the kind of approach. It's a new, fresh story, brand new characters, brand new situations, delving into Star Trek history. But it certainly isn't. Did you find working within canon constraining? Because it didn't feel like your script was at all constrained. It felt like you were working within established canon. I mean, so much established canon. And yet you were able to tell a brand new, fresh story that we haven't seen before that is in the best traditions of uh, Star Trek. Yeah, no, quite the contrary. It it was the contrary of being constrained. I felt... I, I was sitting in the middle of a treasure trove of opportunities and, and choices to make. And there were certain aspects of the technology and the early technology that I thought were fascinating. And the whole notion of, you know, that there's an aspect of this story that, yes, there's the Pearl Harbor piece and the, the sort of fictional idea of what if on D-Day you took a bomber and went straight to Berlin, <laughs> you know, and the effect that, that would – and that – aspect of it and also um this notion of of taking uh of taking of of telling this this story of tremendous conflict and leaving it at the end leaving these characters in a place where they were essentially stranded and had to get home so talk to us about that a little bit right because you did say that you know you had in mind a, a trilogy the first part was the iliad the second part was the odyssey you couldn't think of the third part in fairness neither could homer um but you know did you ever figure out you know what that third part was going to be you know did you have a sense of what the structure of that second part was going to be well more more the latter um i i think that while my intention was to sort of go with the Iliad here. The actual script isn't. I, what I discovered, you know, in, in actually getting into it, it wasn't Iliadish at all. You know, it was a, it was a story of genuine conflict and, and, and something that would have been responsible for everything that came afterwards. And the, and the end is real Kirk-esque, I think, what he figures out and what he does and the way that plays into the canon as well with regard to Remus. And I just was so in love with this notion of, of them not being stuck at this place and heading home. And it was going to take over a year to get there. And they have no way of communicating with her. They have no way of knowing if whether, if if it is even exists anymore. And so they have to make this voyage back. Now that's such a setup for a, a film all by itself of a crew who are sailing back to a place that they don't even know if it exists. Fact is, when they get there, they'll find that it does exist on account of them. But that just created the setup for me for the first experience of a mission of exploration. Because the adventures that they have, trying to evade the Romulans who are chasing them, and the adventures they have in sort of slow motion without warp engines going home, was the setup for whatever I wanted it to be. that, and then therein came the, the sort of the, for me, what I thought there was a potential to experience the etiology of the, the ethos of Starfleet because of that voyage, sort of like the very first voyage of discovery, right. you know, and for them to have to crash on, on another planet to do something with their ship and discover another race. And, you know, all of those other fundamental pieces of the canon would happen like for the first time here, sort of, 
for it, it in, in this section of the, of the story I'm telling. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it was it was it was very much an, it, more the Odyssey than the first one was the Iliad. It really was a genuine. Was a Penelope. And there's even a Penelope, yeah, at the end, waiting for him. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. That's you true. also had some 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 I thought some great humor in the script. Obviously, the relationship with the Vulcans was was played all straight, but also humorously, which was something a lot of the time I felt Enterprise was sort of lacking. And there was there was a time when I I laughed out loud when one of the the Vulcans they're watching 60s science fiction shows on TV. And there's an Outer Limits clip that they're watching. One of the Vulcans like, hey, that looks like, and you name a, you made up a new name of a race. And the Vulcans like, it looks just like, you know, that, whatever that, and I, there was, it was that kind of humor that was very funny. And to find out that there was an actual Vulcan who was interested in 20th and 21st century science fiction as depicted in history. I mean, that was such a great way to give a nod to all of this stuff, but then make it even canonical in a realistic and, and fun Star Trekian manner. And I, 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 there was a lot of flourishes throughout the script like that, that I thought were delightful. Oh, thanks. So I, I hope this one day gets made. Maybe the show will be the push that it needs. <laughs> Cause I would love to see it happen. I'd love to see all three of these scripts well, happen. Yeah. I mean, and again, I would have to figure out, I could maybe use your help in figuring out what the third one would be, but it, you know, it would, I think ultimately it would be, um, picking up the pieces and and after the war and it's really about that what happens next as a result of that journey what he's learned and the this very nascent federation of planets and then to get to the mission statement when of just an infinitive <laughs> when you guys met with donald deline and you were with rick berman yeah. Was Rick Berman going to be the lead producer on this? And was that I, going to be his the, the fifth film that he would be producing? I didn't. It was unclear. I didn't really feel that at the time. Mm. Uh, and I can't really. It was a while ago. I can't really tell you why. Um, he, he, my impression was, and I could be wrong about this, but my impression was at the time that he was sort of connected to this in name only. Mm. Um, and uh, Or just tangentially, you know. Right, because it was the Paramount Brass that approached you. We should put it in context that this was, this was after Enterprise had gone off the air, that you were and um, all, Nemesis had already been made. Nemesis, the the last of the Star Trek pictures, mm -hmm. had been done, had been shot at them. So really, Star Trek, there was nothing going on at the studio. It was, no, it was dead. It was a, and it was a tabula rasa. I mean, it was literally a blank slate. Next generation, as far as they were concerned, was completely over after the failure of Nemesis. Enterprise was canceled after four seasons. So Star Trek, in their mind, required a sort of radical reinvention. And mm -hmm. uh, I wonder if you may have inadvertently answered your own question. Why did they bring in the guy who did Band of Brothers to reconceive Star Trek? And it's what you said. I mean, the amount of research and history that goes into writing Band of Brothers, if you take Star Trek seriously, it's it's not it's the same thing because it's yeah. the future history. And when Star Trek works, it's when this rich canon, this rich history that's as real to its fans as real history is, um, is, uh, is is respected. And and so to have somebody who who knows how to do that research and mine history 
uh, an, an allegory for a story. It, 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 it makes a lot more sense than it does on paper. You know, other yeah. than that you're a terrific writer and Band of Brothers is one of the great miniseries of all time. But uh, uh, but yeah, it's it's it, you know at the very beginning you said why why did they hire me? I have no idea. Why did I do this? I have no idea. So yeah, yeah, and again, it's, it's like I said before. It's there's something to be said for you know sometimes I think when you there are very few things that are have this intense a fan base. But if you go to somebody who is already inculcated into the whole thing. There are all kinds of other agendas. They want to do this. They want to do that. They can't stay clear and just focused. I think on because there's not that remove. And yeah, that, it's true that you you approach it like it. It's it's completely true, and you believe in it 100. percent And my God, what was available to me? I mean, researching this thing was just a blast. And I'm I was constantly. I remember constantly coming up with facts and things that and references and you know, echoes to other things that were just like finding a nugget of gold. Well, that's got to be there. And, you know, and, and figuring out the Vulcan, the story of the Vulcan colony and who would have been there and what would they have been like at that time? And what would they have been doing at, at a, at a, at a get together, you know, and, and also this, the, the whole issue of this, the, 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 the nascent aspect of the Federation of planets. And, and I just, I just so love the idea of, the earth being the entire earth being held hostage to give up one race mm -hmm. saying, no, we won't. I mean, it's just great. You were ahead of your time too, because you even had a MAGA crazy in there. You had uh, Kirk's uh, Tiberius Chase's uh, grandfather who was just... exactly. <laughs> yes. And I had one guy in mind to play him. Yeah. I think his name was Otto Chase. Right. And he's, he's like, he's like a Terra, terra prime and he's living in the Mulig Hoffman Mountains in Antarctica, where there's all the remnants of the Nazi flying saucer program. Yep, yep. Really nice. It was just one guy. Even Miller, who was it going to be? It's walking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I just love the fact that you just now referenced Demons and Terra Prime, which is really the last two-part episode of Enterprise that deals with that xenophobia. And I think that's one of the things that I loved about your script so much is that there was it, it ties into so many different episodes all the way through all the, the modern era of Star Trek. And, um, you know, I wondered when you, you said you, you did all this research and while you were writing it, were you making like copious notes? And did you come up with like your own timeline? Were you looking at the encyclopedias? How did you keep all of that canonical material straight in your head while you were writing? How did it inform the writing process? I'm afraid to ever answer that question. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think that would be helpful for me to, to actually know how that happens. I don't know. I mean, I, it's, it's a very organic process for me. It, it, it's different for every writer. I mean, everybody approaches differently. Some people outline days. I never do ever, ever, ever. And for me, it's always about, I, I need to figure out what's the very first thing you see. What's the very, what's the first image? Because it is, after all, our job is to create moving pictures, you know, and not just in the sense of they're kinetic, but that they're, they move you. Yeah. Uh, and it's all captured within that frame and to tell a story emotionally and how it makes you feel. And 
Um, and then from that moment, it's, it becomes a very organic process for me. And, and I, I do, I had done a bunch of research ahead of time, uh, not really making notes. And then as I went, I would go back and remember I'd read something and go back to fact check something. So it was, I was kind of, I was researching at the same time that I was writing it. Really. But one of my favorite things was actually not, it is the first thing you see in the script, although it doesn't really relate to Star Trek was using the Paramount logo, which is Mount Ben Lomond mm. and, and seeing it fill up with water and become the tip of the Fairline Islands off 30 miles off of the Golden Gate Bridge in the middle of this extraordinary race in which we, we get our first glimpse of how this guy thinks. Right. Yeah. I was actually in a sailboat race on San Francisco Bay in which uh, we did exactly what he, he did in order to have a portion of our vessel cross the finish line before the other one, because we were neck and neck. So we cut the spinnaker um, sheets and we won. It'd be uh, a castable role too, Tiberius. Yeah. It really offered some great opportunity, particularly at that time for so many young up and coming actors who would have been terrific. But even today, you could just really, it's a great role for, for a young you know actor who carries themselves with, uh, you know, who's smart and, 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 and uh, charismatic and athletic. It's, it's just, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, he, he's cut from a you know, classic, you know, let's face it. He's cut from classic world war two movie stock. This guy, you know, can't stand authority. And there's a, there's an element of, of the right stuff to the entire story. Oh yeah. You know, the, the whole test pilot mentality thing, uh, the Jaeger of it all, which I think uh, really infused, that character in my mind. Uh, and also I, it was an absolute joy to come up with this, although it is a hijacked crew, you know, that's thrown together in the third act, but to make those choices, what a, what a blast that was. You know, how am I going to, who is going to be a part of this reluctant crew that will become a real crew by the second film? You know, they'll be in, they'll be, uh, uh, yeah, it, it, it was, to watch that sort of coalesce was going to be a lot of fun. I was looking forward to it. But maybe sometime in the future. Who knows? Really uh, do notes, a notes pass on it, or was it dead before you even got to sort of... It wasn't even a notes pass. Yeah, so I, I mean, at the point Donald DeLine's out the door and the project, for all intents and purposes, is dead. Uh, yeah. What and, a damn shame. Well... Uh, Happens all the time. I know. Did you did you find sort of um, developing the Romulans an interesting challenge? Because of, of all the alien antagonists in Star Trek, they're probably the most underserved or underbaked in a lot of ways. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it because the Vulcans are so well served, and the idea of being able to you know uh, portray these dark cousins. And to get an index into them and, you know, sort of like understanding the Bosnians and the Croatians and the, I mean, what is their true story? What is their real agenda and why are they doing what they're doing? And there is an index into their reasoning. They're not just bad guys. There's an index into what they're, they have a reason for, for this ethnic cleansing that makes sense to, in their minds. And that was terribly important because I didn't want to, you know, create some, I just, I, I, I hate the notion of evil for evil's sake. Yeah, because it's lazy writing. 
it's yeah, it's very lazy storytelling. So I'd I'd love that, and I love the challenge of dealing with the, you know, the the notion that nobody who has ever seen a Romulan lives to tell the tell of it, which I got around. Yes. <laughs> in, a, in the story. Um, but, and I, and, you know, how great to be able to go right to Romulus and see yeah. Remus and do all that stuff. I mean, it was such a blast. And, you know, it does turn quite Horatio Hornblower there in, in space mm-hmm. in that final sequence and, or that penultimate sequence, which was really a blast to write. But that goes back to the DNA of Star Trek because that's one of the things, you know, people always talk the wagon train to the stars, but it was Horatio Hornblower that really inspired Roddenberry in the very beginning. And of course, I got to imagine that Paramount was excited about the fact that it was also Top Gun. I mean, you were doing Top Gun. You're going to look at it in a very commercial kind of Paramount kind of way. Yep. Obviously, it's it's, it's better and more nuanced, but there's that as well for a studio that, you know, is one of their most successful movies of all time. Yeah. And 96% less of volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, wait till, wait till the sequel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Well, I got to say, you know, I'm really glad we got to talk about it. It's such a wonderful script. And obviously, there's so few people who have read it. So to be able to sort of share it with uh, the, you know, this, this audience who I think is so fascinated, because it is an interesting part of Star Trek history that to date has gone really unexplored. And uh, it's just such a great piece of material. And I, I think uh, we have a sister podcast, Best Movies Never Made, you know, that this fits in with as, as well, because it truly is, you know, a great movie that was uh, that was never made. But uh, as with Star Trek, there are always possibilities. So there are always possibilities. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. It was it was a long time ago, uh, but it was in a galaxy not so far away. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I I do think it's true that when you when the dearth of material and everybody reaching creatively, to, now what can we do with this franchise? When you can just reach right into the middle of it, or the you know the early days of it, and find this this void that is nothing but opportunity. That would be, it's so satisfying because it's great to be able to to see a moment in a story and, and realize that that echoes down the ages through all these different iterations and all these different theories. You know, that's just delightful. When you can find those. Well, when you take that attitude, absolutely. You know, there's you just you just said it right then and there. I mean, I I, I wish that everybody who worked on Star Trek approached it from that perspective. Well, we can hope. <laughs> well, Eric, thank you again for joining us. This is great talking to you, and it's my pleasure chat chat with you. And and hopefully the next time we chat, it'll be because uh, it's been greenlit by uh, CBS All Access as a limited uh, a, a, a miniseries or or uh, or something. But uh, uh, again, always always a pleasure. So take care and and stay safe and healthy. Thanks so much. Well, will do. And you guys stay safe and healthy too. And Mark, next time we talk, I want to talk to you about your relationship with Fred Decker. Uh, oh, that's a whole nother podcast. That's, it's got to be because you know he and I went to elementary school together. Oh, I did not know. Fred's a yeah. great guy who yeah. had his brush with Star Trek. Yes, he did, and he and I talked about it back back then. But yeah, we were making eight and super eight millimeter movies in his backyard in San Rafael when we were just this big. Yeah, that's hysterical. Awesome. Yeah.
Fred, Fred's wonderful. I'm such a fan of his work. And I know that his Star Trek experience was not the most satisfying for him. That's uh, true. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but we will always have Bond. At least I always, <laughs> we love James Bond. Don't bring up Star Trek with Fred, but Bond, we're, we're good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we'll have to talk. Sounds like you take care, Eric. Thanks. You guys too. Stay safe. Thank you. All right. Okay, that was great. Uh, I really enjoyed hearing Eric's insights into the into the uh, the process of this. Um, it's interesting because I think that uh, you know one of the big problems I think now with Star Trek is they feel they always got to tie it into something pre-existing. Mm-hmm. You know that they, they're not willing to take the risk on original piece of Star Trek IP. It either has to be something you know, remaking the original for 2009 or, you know, we bring back Picard from Next Generation or somehow there's always something tying into what we've done in the past rather than just sort of starting over, starting fresh, like the Next Generation, which was really gutsy in, in terms of really not tying into anything we'd seen before. You can say Deep Space Nine, perhaps the most original concept of all of them. There'd been, never been anything like that. And other than eventually Worf joining them, completely, you know, divested from Next Generation. Now, this also, I'm not sure in the feature world would have necessarily worked for that same reason. I think you need to, why was Star Trek four the most successful Star Trek movie uh, until Star Trek 2009? It, it, it brought in people, you know, people knew Kirk and Spock, you, you know, just from popular culture and they knew all the, the tropes of Star Trek and then they watched them be funny. Right. You know, like whales. And they like whales. They like the whales. Who doesn't like whales? So um, the problem I think this would have had was unless you put a big, like Tom Cruise in it, you know. Big gonna, Tom Cruise? You mean like 18 feet like tall? Giant-sized, like colossal Cruise. Who, Titano Cruise, attack. Unless you cast a big-name actor like right. Tom Cruise. <laughs> um, you're... you're you're gonna have a problem because you're gonna have a lot of Star Trek fans that are not gonna be excited because it doesn't tie into their Star Trek. Uh, and then you're gonna have the the mainstream audience, which is deciding what to see on a Friday in the non-pandemic world, and uh, and and they're gonna say, "Well, I, I, this isn't about Kirk and Spock, or this isn't about Picard. Or what what is what is this?" So I think it would have been a marketing challenge for the studio that could have been overcome. What do you I guys? Think the, I think uh, the thing that that probably should have been done to tie everything in is to have sort of a framing story with the original characters to set this up mm. to sort of ease us into it the, in you know no more than like 5 minutes at the beginning see i i disagree with that because i think that this script does a really good job when this script opens at sea and you're you're in the middle of this regatta i mean it's a race it 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 immediately establishes that it's a new milieu right and you you get to introduce these characters in in a in the middle of the action you know screenwriting 101 drop your open something in the middle of a, of a scene you you get to know them on this scene and then it's this the star trek universe carries you along and this is so steeped in canon without being obtrusively so i mean if you know canon there's a lot to love about this script going oh my god they're referring to everything without ever being bogged down by it and I think it does a really good job of establishing these new characters in our established Star Trek universe, but new characters that you care about. The first, I mean, the first 30 minutes, the first 30 pages is all character development of new characters. And you're right. not, 
it it doesn't bog itself down. I think by page which thirty, is, which is why it's difficult it. to which is why it's difficult to bring in the you know people who are more comfortable with the original characters. That's all I'm saying. Right, but I do think that he does a pretty great job. You know, like any story that you, any movie that you watch has to establish its universe and its characters. Absolutely. Even if, and I think this film, this film really does a good job of doing so. And it's interesting because we have seen for the last decade in Star Trek history, prequel, we've seen prequel after prequel, or alternate universe prequel or whatever. And they are not as successful as do at doing what this script does immediately, which is create brand new characters. And yet, still, I mean, I could have seen Chris Pine headline this movie. He he could have mm-hmm. played Tiberius Chase. He would have been the perfect kind of person to headline this. And you never would have you would have been immediately with him. You know, you love that guy when they win the regatta at the at the beginning with their hover hover sail sail sailboats in San Francisco Bay it would have been a great scene and you would have immediately loved him and I think they would have cast that if this movie was as well cast as Star Trek 09 was and yet you know you, you could have had you could have had a Zachary Quinto playing one of the Vulcan characters you you would have had a you would have had a, a, a huge movie I think but there's no question I mean again I think that it's fucking great but I think that ultimately it's destiny well, I didn't really have a destiny but but uh, its best destiny would have been Star Trek's best destiny, which is TV. Because just the, the way those characters were created, they were like, they were built to last. It was like we're, we uh, right. had a conversation that we may or may not have had in the past or will have in the future with an actor who talked about um, playing everything in a scene because you just kind of, the actor doesn't know necessarily like, you know, where that actor is going to be in the next week. And there's a degree of playing everything in um, in the introduction of the characters in this in this script, which is fine. It's great, um, but I think that it, it's the kind of thing that it, it wants to sustain more than a film. It's and and one of those clues I think is just the fact that it was designed as a as a trilogy. Um, that it's that it is sort of built to last to sort of tell like the story that in what 2005 it would have been possible to do it on television. Absolutely no way whatsoever. Um, you know, in 2020, it's a phone call, right? And then it's getting a lot of other people out of the way of Star Trek, but still. I also thought one of the one of the great things about this was it was really well written. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really it, the characters are very evocative. He really nailed. I mean, listening to listening to what he he said about writing this movie and how you know he approached it as a as a like Darren was saying a historical historical drama historical documents he he really did a great <laughs> job of 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 creating this milieu and you felt that it was completely le- legitimate and i i i just i thought the script was was wonderful and i did like even though it it ends not really a cliffhanger because the situation is resolved at least for the time being but the idea that you leave your crew to go off to do something else tomorrow i thought was a great way it is a definitive ending but then you also promise more and i that's why i thought it would work as a as a feature because even if it was only a one-off and it never had two other movies made i think this would have gone down it would have been a beloved film i think it would have brought a lot of people into the franchise too because the various characters and the relationships were done like the way they introduced the vulcans in this was more appealing than they introduced them in enterprise 
the Vulcans were endearing as opposed to sort of off-putting. And and I, I really, and, and the end of the film, I thought it was rousing, and I, I love this. And it had blood in its veins, man, for sure. And it, I think it, they could still do it. You know, I mean, whatever CBS All Access gets rebranded as, um, I, I think there's no reason why they shouldn't, they should go back into the vault and make this, find a filmmaker that wants to make it, and go do it, do, make a feature that costs less than $100 million. I think they're rebranding it as CBS No Access. <laughs> I, I, I got to ask you guys one more question, but first I have to say, so Rob, you're sort of saying it'd be like Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. Even though it's planned as a trilogy, they, they may never <laughs> one, but it'll well, be. I, I, look, I would hope not. I think one of the things that's happened with, with science fiction filmmaking in general is, is at the studio tentpole level is it is too expensive. Yeah. I, I think what Star Trek and what filmmaking needs, tentpole filmmaking needs, especially Star Trek, is you got to make a Star Trek movie that's less than $200 million. You actually less than a hundred million dollars. And I think it can be done, but it requires a filmmaking team that understands and a producing team and a studio that understands there's no reason there, there's so much profligate spending. Mark, you know, you're making a science fiction um, uh, TV series. You don't have to break the bank and everything doesn't have to be A-list. You have to be creative and pick your battles. And I think it'd be really interesting to see if somebody could come in and make a feature, a Star Trek feature for less than a hundred million. The studio would love that and concentrate again on characters. And I think that something like this is a perfect way to do that. And I think it could be a big hit. We've talked about this in the past. I mean, before you roll an inch of film and it's not really film, but you know, let's just say it for the metaphor. Um, you know, Bad Robot's taking $10 million off the top. You know, how how do you have production value or how do you make a movie for a, a reasonable budget when you're spending that? And and then, you know, you have the cast, which is now all, you know, high first dollar gross kind of people, you know, with Chris Chris uh, Pine and, and Zachary Quinto and, and it's just... Um, and, and Zoe Saldana, it's a, it, it's like impossible to make these movies for a price like they did with the original movies, and even they priced themselves out of the out of the ballpark. I mean, Star Trek Six almost didn't happen because they couldn't keep the budget low enough, and even that was a joke of a budget even then. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it really is a challenge, particularly now. What will the new normal offer? Will anyone go to the movies for anything other than these two hundred, three hundred million dollar, you know? Uh, huge epics, you know, Marvel movies, Star Wars. I mean, who knows if they'll go see Avatar 2 even? We don't know. I'm, you know, I mean... You know what? I've been stuck in this house with these toddlers for so long. I would go to see a period romance that I don't care about just to get out of it. But, you know, I think it, uh, you look in Paramount's history, and while it's 30 years old now, uh, you know, I was just watching the 4K version of Hunt for Red October. Mm -hmm. And in a way, this film... You know, it, it harks back to those kind of political thrillers, the Jack Ryan, Tom Clancy movies, yeah. whether it's Patriot Games, Hunt for Red October, Clear and Present Danger, even Some of All Fears that the studios aren't making anymore. How dare but, you, sir? But I, but it's just like if they were if that mentality were to come back, you know, and you, you were to think about, OK, how do we get back? To, how does Paramount get back to its mentality of making tentpole properties the way they did 30 years ago? It can be done. Yeah. It can be done, and I think it has to be done. It it has to be done, and it's a way. And what a what a great way to to come back. All this all this script would need is a different a different title because it's not Star Trek: The Beginning. 
you know, it's 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 post enterprise. It's canonical. It fits in, and yet it's something brand new. So they need to he needs to come up with a catchy title. And I think a great great bunch of what an what a great ensemble. And you can get a bunch of new actors make stars well, out of this movie. It's Starfleet Begins, basically. Well, that yeah, okay. yes, yeah. That's a that's a really good point, and uh, it'd be interesting to see. Um, but uh, you know, the future is so uncertain. And based on what you guys were talking about, I think we should do an episode on the best Star Trek movies that aren't Star Trek movies, where we talk about Master and Commander and Crimson Tide and all these movies that we always say are. Are, are Star Trek movies that, that are better than Star Trek movies. I mean, we all say Galaxy Quest, right? But there's so many other movies that are Star Trek done right, done better than Star Trek has been done. Right. So that might be interesting. By the way, has anyone looked at CBS, uh, not CBS All Access, uh, HBO Max? It's just a, a, that's a disaster. I don't know. Dumpster fire. Well, I can't watch it on my Roku. You'd think after looking at the interface of Disney Plus that they would take their marching orders and go, well, they've done a pretty good job over there. Why don't we apply some of that? It seems like it was so haphazardly done. Where's the killer app? They launched with, I mean, Disney Plus launches with The Mandalorian. So even it hid, it obscured the fact that they didn't have a ton of originals, right? Mm -hmm. So they had this great catalog of stuff that hadn't really been, uh, you know, around as much. And then they had some really strong originals, including Encore which, you know, is not an expensive show. But CBS, uh, I mean, HBO Max, it's just like the originals are so thin. There's nothing like that you're dying to watch. Um, and then the, the navigation is not very intuitive. And um, and it's just a bunch of catalog titles that for people like us who, are, who already still, have them, already have them, it's ridiculous. I just don't understand... This is what happens when just market research rather than actually people fundamentally understand content and the way content is consumed. Uh, it's all a bunch of computer people I, I, who must have designed this. There goes our uh, our fight to stay positive on the show. Oh, damn it. <laughs> Darn it. Uh, I have to say Eric was a great guest and you guys were fantastic. And this is a really interesting conversation. I, I had I a lot of fun. He's great. He is great. Yeah. Well, it's not. He's such. He's got such a, a such a keen mind. Yeah, he's super smart. You know, very thoughtful. And look, you know, because I mean, I wasn't kidding. I mean, Band of Brothers is amazing. It's Absolutely, a, a sensational. And uh, I mean, I love the Pacific also, but a Band of Brothers is extraordinary television. And you know, he was a writer and a producer on it, and was there, and uh, it's just extraordinary. And 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 you can see. Uh, uh, you know, what happens when somebody who applies that to Star Trek, how how interesting it could be. Well, you know what you were talking about, that it needs a big a, a big sort of movie star to be in it. The connection with Tom Hanks is not a bad one. Yeah, but I mean, not but not Tom Hanks. He's too old. Well, he could play the as father. The, he could the, play Chase's the, father. The general. Uh, the, the, uh, yeah, he'd be great. He'd be great. You he'd know? And he would do it, too. He totally would. You know, you what you could do, I mean, you could populate. What I don't understand is even Tom Hanks is not commanding $20 million of film anymore. No. And we live in a different world. But you get Tom Hanks. Imagine all the other actors that would follow him, you know, to be in something like this. And you, you what you really need is a filmmaker. I think the real problem that has befallen Star Trek is that everybody who works on Star Trek now doesn't take it seriously. Like, right. you, Darren, you pointed out Nicholas Meyer and, and Jedrinson 
both looked at this as a not just as a pop culture phenomenon, but as a storytelling challenge. What is the essence of these stories? Why do people like them? They didn't sit there and go, we're going to change them. We're going to update them. We're going to make them better. No, no, no. We're going to figure out why is this endured? What is it about this? I mean, here's a guy who came in and said, uh, you know, I didn't, I'm not, I don't like science fiction. I don't like Star Trek. And in doing the research and in looking into the canon, fell in love with it. Yes. And, and, and realize what it was supposed to be. And maybe it takes an outsider like that or somebody that, that doesn't necessarily, well, I'm going to delve into this and respect it because they inherently respect the previous work that was done. They don't poo-poo it and say, oh, I can do it better or I can do it differently. They're like, no, I'm going to go in and figure out why this has worked for so long and add to it. And that's what I found interesting. Such a great point. They don't condescend to the material. It's the same thing when we talked to Nick Meyer, where he said, you know, I, I thought, oh, it's the one with the ears. But then he realized, hey, I love Sherlock Holmes. I love Horatio Hornblower. And that's what this is. And that's yeah. what I'm going to do. And it was the same thing with Eric. Once he was committed, he was in. He was yeah. fully engaged. And he mined everything there was in, in canon and respected canon and, and delivered something you know, that's really interesting. So, and uh, he really did a deep dive into canon. I was like, he's referring to, uh, and it was all of the episodes that should have been referred to in a story like this one. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not like, well, to say that somebody said, well, you know, when Spock smiled in the cage, I've always been fascinated with that moment when he smiled. And I'm going to make an entire, an entire short trek, an entire Spock's evolutionary story from that moment when he smiled. I mean, that was just a production mistake that was not evolved to where the series would go. So to say that you're going to base something on that particular time is like, well, that's not even really okay. But what he did was he went in and, I mean, there's so many references. I mean, deep dive references that are not overt. Right. But if you look for them and you know what what he's referring to, it was amazing. it's buried treasure. Buried treasure. Yeah. Well, look, I think, uh, you know, our deep appreciation to Eric Jendrickson for joining us uh, today. And uh, of course, you guys for uh, returning to uh, once more into the arena. Because a beginning is a very delicate time. Very delicate time. Exactly. And the, and the spice is life. And remember the tooth. So, uh, uh, you know, until next time, uh, I want to remind you that you can watch episodes now of Inglorious Trexperts on Electric Now, the free streaming app available at your favorite app store or best movies never made which this show would fit very nicely into it's a wonderful podcast about movies and television that never saw the light of a projector bulb and uh, as well as uh, the rebel and the rogue and uh, we'll be back with another new episode of inglorious Trexperts next saturday wherever you listen to the podcast so until then on behalf of rob ashley darren and myself keep on trekking ingloriously of course and stay safe stay healthy engage
This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.